I want to look at a story out of Mark chapter 14. This is um, when the lady comes and anoints Jesus with perfume. And uh, it's carried in, in at least two of the Gospels. It's out of sequence with Luke, so there's a question whether it's the same story or not. But um, in this particular passage, it's about six days before Jesus is going to die. And so the timing of it is, is really a, a powerful thing. And uh, so when you, you read the first two verses and say, you read it's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it just sets the timing so that we know when this is taking place. It goes on and says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And uh, it, the details in the different tellings of it are slightly different, but um, in John's account, they include Mary uh, as being the woman that uh, poured it out. One of the commentators will say, well, John wrote much later, and so they weren't necessarily afraid of attaching names to this story. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, some of the details where one will say she poured it over his feet and wept over him, or cover, you know, used her hair to wipe it, um, at very minimum, it was quite a mess. And John's account says the fragrance filled the whole house. An alabaster jar would be a stone, uh, kind of like ivory, that they, and it would have been sealed, and they broke the seal, and so this perfume is just poured over him, and, and the odor goes everywhere. And so uh, it was, you know, a very memorable moment, so to speak, attaching that with the smell and, and such. But uh, that said, um, there were some who were who got indignant over it. You know, they're going, this was worth 300 denarii, which means nothing to us. But the different commentators will say, some will say 40, 50 bucks, but then others will say, this was 300 days of wages. You know, now wages could have been different, but if you treat it in that light, that was a very expensive gift, Right? for a laborer's wages, to 300 days' worth. John's account, again, comes back and tracks it to Judas and saying, Judas was upset because Judas was a thief and like he kept the money for the group and he liked to dig in and, and you know, he saw that money evaporating in front of his eyes. But it was a turning point for him you know, where this act of worship doesn't make financial sense but timing-wise in the Lord, it's powerful. And I guess that's one of the things that when I'm thinking about this story, I'm going, when was the last time I did something of worship or extravagance in the Lord that wasn't rooted in a financial decision? You know, or a timing thing, you know, that nobody understood the timing of this except Jesus. And there are times when we step into things that seem a little goofy in the moment, 
but is it completely appropriate in the timing of God? And that's something that is worth asking God then, what do you want, not just what makes sense in the moment? Because it, it's one of those things that we, we come up with a plan and we assume God wants this because of what we see in regard to timing and also what we see in regard to finance and what we see with the setting. And sometimes it's just flat out wrong. Or sometimes we're very judgmental with others that step into something and we're going, what were they thinking? How could they spend that kind of money doing that? Or why would they, you know, and it's like, well, to have the sense of what God in that moment was doing was missed by most of the room. Um, so they were, they were scolding her, and Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing. He says, you always have the poor with you whenever you want. You can do good for them, but you'll not always have me. So the idea of helping the poor, that's a good thing. But in this moment, he says, there's something even more precious. And he goes, what she's done, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So he's making a clear declaration. And he says, wherever the gospels are claimed in the whole world, the memory of what she's done will be told, or this memory of her is going to be known. So she's stepping into something that has long-term impact, and, and now we're even now rehearsing that story. She didn't necessarily see that in the moment, but still the timing of what she did was powerful. And so I, I look at that, and I'm, I've been balancing it with several things. You know, I had mentioned that I've been chewing on this whole thing of Matthew and how him being a tax collector, he had been set up for wealth, if not already having it. And yet when Jesus calls him, he leaves that. And so when he's writing, you can't serve God in money. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Just know that God's going to provide it. And so what you wear, he says, that doesn't matter for Matthew to, come to have come to that conclusion. He had to abandon a way of life that he'd already been a part of. And then to, for me to, to look at that and say the first time that the 12 were sent out or the 72 sent out later, and Jesus tells them, don't take any money with you, that had to be contrary to everything he'd been trained in, everything he'd been aiming his life toward. And then to even realize he wasn't the financial accountant that's controlling the money with the disciples. In fact, Jesus puts it with the thief. And you're just kind of looking at it and going, that's so different than the way I live. That is so different than the decisions I would make. That we, we regularly access the will of God, assuming that because our finances are this way, that this is a decision we should make. I mean, who would put a thief in charge of stuff? Except Jesus and get away with it. That'd be 
be like saying Allie could spend whatever she wants in the office, just any way she wants, and it's just all good. And she's going, I could do that. <laughs> we would not be happy. We're not happy in family life when some money fritters off. And yet, you know, he's going, there's other issues. There's other things to be aware of. Now, I, <laughs> I caught up on my readings this week. <laughs> I can announce that. Um, I contrast that with the story of Saul as I was walking through that this week because both readings were kind of connected, and, at least for me. And when I go through the story of Saul, um, the man had some significant failures, but they are failures that on the surface don't seem all that goofy. The first one in 1 Samuel 13, the, the army has been called together and Samuel's supposed to show up and make a sacrifice so that they, in a sense, have God's blessing to go to war. Now, the army is greatly outnumbered, vastly outnumbered. And people start abandoning things when they see what they're involved in. And they start hiding anywhere there's a hiding place. And so Saul not only has a much smaller military, he doesn't have the weaponry that the, the Philistines have. He doesn't have the chariots, the steel, you know, for weapons, none of it. And, and people realize that, and they're starting to, to flee, and Samuel's late. You know, you would think that God in his timing would at least show up at the right time. And, and really what's happening is this is a test for Saul to be willing to say there is no way we win except through God. And so it can happen however he wants. He, he knew the story of Gideon in a similar situation. But in this situation, it's up to him to make the right choice, and he doesn't. He sees people frittering away. He says, well, we'll, just, we'll do this without Samuel. We'll have this sacrifice, and it's a raw, raw rally, and at least it'll draw us together. We'll have unity. I mean, that's what appears to be his mindset. And so he offers a sacrifice, and Samuel shows up right as they're finishing. And he's going, Samuel goes, you just did a really dumb thing. This is not going to establish your kingdom. And it's kind of what the, the mindset of, you know, I've got to do something. And again, it's like, I need to help God out because he's not really coming through on time. You know, it's, it's, it's subtle. And yet I look at that and I'm going, well, man, I could easily make that dumb decision. Because it, it, everything about it seemed like something had to happen. And you want God's blessing, right? So you do something that, you know, if you don't know what to do something, remember? That's kind of the normal advice, right? In this case, it was really wrong. 
In the next chapter, another strange thing. The Philistines have these guys so hard-pressed that, again, just things are not working. And, And so Saul makes this vow. He says, nobody should eat anything. We're going to fast until evening, except that God brings deliverance. Sounds righteous, right? I mean, sounds like a, you know, let's, let's fast and prove how much we love God and, and, you know, expect something. Let's deprive ourselves spiritually. I mean, that's what, that's what God really wants, right? He wants us to feel miserable so that he can, you know, that he'll do something. There's something twisted in that thought, and yet that often comes into Christian thinking. And so, you know, he's made this vow, nobody eats anything. Well, his son Jonathan doesn't hear about it, but he he gets tired of the inactivity. He says, well, maybe God would do something for us. And and he sees a garrison of Philistines, and he talks to his armor bearer and says, I'd like to take them on. Now, what they have to do is they have to climb this this hill where it's hands and feet both. It's steep enough that they can't just walk up it. Philistines invite them over. So they're they're climbing it. They're vulnerable any time during that whole process. But the guys are going, this is going to be fun. Let them climb to the top. At minimum, they're going to be weary, right? So they get to the top, and God brings a victory for them. It says, in the space of a half acre, they slay 20 men. And then the others take off. And so suddenly Israel realizes there's victory coming and they chase them. And in the woods, there's a strange thing. There's honey on the ground. And, you know, Jonathan, not knowing anywhere, eats, refreshes himself to continue in the battle. And everyone else looks at it and says, well, that looks wonderful, but they keep going because they know the vow. And at the end of the day, there's, a, there's an awareness that something's wrong. And it turns out that they recognize that Jonathan has eaten in spite of this vow. It wasn't a good vow, but it was a vow to the Lord. And, and so... Saul's ready to kill him and say, well, I'm a shame he's my son, but let's, let's make this right before God. And, and finally, the men say, no, God brought a tremendous victory through him, and they pay the ransom for life, which was an acceptable form of things of that day. But again, a religious choice, you know, seemingly righteous because of the deprivation that it brought on to the individuals, and yet the wrong time and the wrong way. And you're going, I could make a decision like that. that that's, an, you know, trying to buy God's favor, trying to just plead, you know, but not really listening for what he wants. The next chapter has a, a, another story where... Saul's called to go out to battle and and conquer the Amalekites, and he's told, do not save anything. This is to be given unto the Lord. Well, 
he has a tremendous victory. And when Samuel comes to see him, Saul's already built a monument to himself after this, this victory. So, and again, he's probably not recognizing God's hand in it as much as should have been. And it shows a little bit of, you know, who he is. is a, I won, you know. You can thank me that I took you into battle. And, but then Samuel's going, why do I hear sheep bleeding and, and this other stuff going on? And, and Saul has rushed to him and said, Samuel, I was obedient to the Lord and it's all good. And Samuel's going, no, there's something wrong here. He said, oh no, we've just saved the best for sacrifice unto the Lord. And Samuel makes this powerful statement. He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And again, that's one of those challenges that, to walk through and say, if God asks something of me, it's better to do that than to do some type of religious worship thing afterwards. Or try to buy his favor through, you know, I'll just be, you know, I'll sing more, I'll pray more, I'll read my Bible more, and then it'll all be good. So again, this is, you know, this is a man who has the appearance of religiousness but doesn't seem to get it right. And he's told, God's going to seek someone after his own heart. The next chapter actually is the anointing of David in 16 and in 17, you know, Goliath is the, is the one. And, and again, David, the boy, ends up taking on the battle. There's another oddity in that. When Saul was selected as the king, it said that he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Who better to take on a giant than the biggest of the land? And yet, he didn't take on that battle. It took, on some, it took someone with the heart, even though physically he wasn't in a place to do it. Because timing and finance and the size of the conflict has very little to do to the God of the ages in controlling the outcome. It has, it has no power over him. And so when we, when we walk through life, we need to be asking, what are your desires? And at times it's going to be coming out with these extravagant acts of worship that you're going, everybody else might be going, that seems a little over the top. Why, why would they do that? Or it may be that nobody else knows how crucial this moment is except for God. And the decision that's made today is going to have great impact later. And the memory of it goes on. Or there are times when we look at things and everything about us screams, this is religious. This is, this is surely, this is what God would want. But if the assumption is made rather than the asking of him, something's goofy. 
It's easy to get caught up in form and system and actually miss the power of what God has. So I just, you know, as we, I'd encourage you to, you know, in regard to, you know, comparing these two stories, only God truly knows the timing, and so we should be calling out to him, not assuming. You know, and, and as far as the size of the issue, again, that, that has very little to do with God's mindset in regard to eternity. All through the scripture, we're seeing the underdogs win. We're seeing those who are weak made strong. And so it shouldn't surprise us at times when, you know, we're called to do something that in the short term doesn't make sense, but it is fully within God's economy. True worship needs to be done God's time, God's way. Thank you, Lord, for your scripture that speaks life to us. And we pray that our hearts will be tuned to you in a way that doesn't just assume things, but really listens for your voice and your leadership and wisdom. And Lord, even in acts of extravagance or acts of waiting, or in times of just calling out to you and saying, except for you, there's no way. Help us to faithfully pursue you and listen for your voice. Amen. You know, Mary's decision to spend that money with the perfume was in the instant. And regularly we keep thinking, if I'm truly serving God, it's got to be long term. And so there are times when he calls for the instant, even though this was having eternal impact. You know, it's, it's not everything's as obvious as what we decide. And there are times when we have to make that decision in him. So I, I would pray in this group that our hearts would be tuned toward him, and I guess I would say, if you're in a, this process of decision-making, uh, let's pray with you. And let's ask God to give you wisdom as to what is the right decision. And then also, um, just that if, uh, if you're being challenged, you know, there's that, there are critical moments where we just have to hear a word, and, and we want that. Um, so let's, let's continue on in worship. There's opportunity for prayer. If you would like healing, why don't you come forward and we'll pray for healing as well, okay? May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy what it is to hear your voice and the guidance that you long to give, guiding their steps helping them to make the right decisions. Lord, as each one goes into the community, I ask that you give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural, I pray. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. Amen. Amen. God bless you.